If you would, open your Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 4. We will again today take a a one-day vacation uh, from our study of the book of Acts. So open your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Philippian church, uh, Philippians chapter 4. We'll begin reading in verse 4, Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. I've said on a number of occasions, I'm really uh, not a, a news junkie. Uh, I don't spill, fill my evenings uh, with Fox News or CNN or any of the other news services. But uh, over these last few years, by way of necessity, uh, I've had to uh, give attention uh, to that which is uh, being reported uh, that which is going on both within the world, uh, within the culture, and and tragically all too often within the church. I rarely hear anything in the course of uh, listening to these things that is is of any encouragement. In fact, uh, I hear a great deal that actually discourages me. Uh, I saw again this week uh, that... uh, The United States Senate has voted to consider something uh, very deceptively called the Respect for Marriage Act, which is anything other than a a, a bill that will respect a biblical, historical understanding of what marriage is. To be sure, if this bill were to pass, uh, religious freedom would be in peril, that, that uh, you could be forced into affirming, uh, acknowledging, participating, anything you want to say about things that go against our biblical convictions. There has been a, a bill before the Virginia state legislature. It is not before them now, but I can imagine that uh, activists, across the country are pushing legislators to consider a bill that will criminalize parental behavior for refusing to affirm immoral same-sex types of behaviors, even uh, for not allowing them to be mutilated. And here, even within a few hours' drive, right here in the Bible Belt, Vanderbilt University, will mutilate your child upon his or her demands. These things concern me. A, a, a war in, between Russia and Ukraine and the very flippant discussion of setting off nuclear weapons, uh, given the uh, inflationary cycle of uh, these last few years and the corruption and incompetency that we see abounding, all of these things are things that should appropriately concern us. And it leads me to a question. And I will follow the word order of a book that I have recommended uh, previously, a book by Francis Schaeffer, How Should We Then Live? I'll ask this question today. How should we then give thanks? In a world in which we are overwhelmed by things that challenge us as we enter into a 
day of thanksgiving and even a, a season that is set aside for not just generic celebration, but celebration of that greatest thing of all, that which transcends all the entrance into our world of our Savior whose name is Jesus Christ. How then do we do these things in view of these things that do concern us? And my hope today as we look at these few short verses is maybe I can offer to us some guidelines and maybe some guardrails that will prepare us for what for some is complicated and complex, the entirety of the whole holiday season. But even an attitude that will go far past January 1st, in which we live with a heart that overflows with thanksgiving, and that as the Apostle Paul commands that in each and every circumstance we can and will rejoice in the Lord. So let's think about that this morning as we think about giving thanks in all seasons. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Pray with me. Father, we do thank you for your goodness, and it is appropriate to direct to you our thanks. That we are of all people to be characterized by a heart filled with thanks for your goodness to us. Your goodness revealed, expressed, applied to us in your gospel. May that gospel so permeate, so inform, so empower us to live in this season and even in the balance of our lives, with hearts that do rejoice and hearts that do give thanks. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that distinguishes Christian preaching from wise, good, sound, practical, moral advice is the distinction between that which is the imperatives of the Bible and that which is the indicatives of the Bible. That is the distinction I've long pointed out to you, the distinction between the law and the gospel. And to be sure, God's law, if you want to say it in the most basic way, is really wise counsel. That it does direct us as to how to live in a way that we may flourish, flourish even in a fallen, in a difficult world. 
And so as we think about these things, we can come to these imperatives. And you, you may notice in your Bible, there, there are actually two imperatives that drive the four, four verses. The, the first is that word rejoice. It is a second person plural imperative. That means y'all need to rejoice all the time. Did you get that? Okay. The appropriate accent. And the negative corollary, same thing, second person, plural, active imperative, do it all the time, is do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. That, that those are to be driving commands. To say it simply then to not rejoice is what? A sin. And to be anxious is to also sin. Now, folks, that's the law of God. You know what the law of God does to me? It drives me to a cross where there's a Savior whose name is Jesus Christ. Because sometimes, not only do I fail to rejoice, but I get quite anxious about a lot of things. I get quite concerned. I made the remark again this morning, and I have said it for 10 to 15 years. Uh, I do not use alcohol, but if I did, I would use a lot. That, that if a little will do a little good, a lot will do a lot of good. Yeah. Nights that you don't sleep. Troubles that you would just as soon forget. And so I understand that, and probably by way of heredity, maybe a bit of enculturation, maybe personality-wise inclined toward a type of anxiety. And so our Bible says what? That we are to place those things that concern us at the foot of a cross upon which our Savior did die for us. In fact, we're commanded, as Peter would write later, cast all your anxieties upon Him because He cares for you. And Jesus said, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so we see here this, this driving imperative and as I look now if if there is any communication to me from you this morning as to what's going on in your hearts by what's being displayed on your face we got some sinners out there this morning what what is the old thing if you if 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 you're if you're happy and you know it tell your face Well, yeah, there, there is a, a reality to that. And so there really is a gospel imperative for our good that we should rejoice, that we should find in that which God has provided for us in His Son, Jesus Christ, we should find a basis for rejoicing, and then we are thankful when we fail to rejoice that there is a Savior that was crucified for that sin as well. 
Now, a couple of you are actually smiling now. I'm shocked. I'm overwhelmed. And so, and as always, we want to make that distinction. Joy is something that truly is deeply rooted. Rooted in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Applied to us by the Holy Spirit. Affected by that working of regeneration by which uh, our very roots sink into the soil, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, which can never fail to produce the fruit of joy. And so those things are, are, are true, but, but we want to be joyful, but we will not necessarily always be happy. Because happiness, as I'm defining it, I, you, I don't know what Webster says about it, but my, my definitions are better. But happiness tends to be more superficial. It means things are going well. You ain't got anything to worry about. I'll just be fair with you. It's been a long time. Long before I started driving a car for myself, when I didn't have anything to be concerned about. Probably most of you are in that particular category. And yet we also find in this command to always rejoice in the Lord that Jesus himself was described as a man of sorrows, and he was acquainted with grief, according to Isaiah 53.3. Jesus even pronounced a blessing in one of his earliest sermons, that blessed are those who are poor in spirit, those who, are, who mourn. And Paul would even speak of that we are to weep with those to weep. And so we understand that there is a time appropriate. But our joy is tempered with the realities of a fallen world. And thank God our griefs are tempered by the realities of the next. And the fact that that next world, by means of the gospel, has already broken into this very difficult world. And I make no bones about it. Life in a fallen world is indeed Difficult, And so this joy that Paul commands under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so it's law, you are under obligation to rejoice, just to be clear. Okay? This rejoicing is rooted in the gospel, the realities of what Christ has done, and I would say that it is an essential prerequisite for giving thanks. It would seem to me the only heart, the only individual who could give thanks was the heart that found the realities of the joy of the Lord. And so there really is a discipline to joy. Anytime I've mentioned this concept, I'm reminded of one of the first books that I was assigned to read at Beeson Divinity School in the fall of 1995. A book called The Celebration of Discipline by a man by the name of Richard Foster. Uh, Foster is by uh, way of conviction and association a, a Quaker, which means probably he has quite a few aberrant views. But for the most part, his book, uh, The Celebration of Discipline, offers some good insight 
into the practice of what we call spiritual disciplines. You hear me talk about them, uh, the, uh, the use of God's Word to, to read it, to hear it preached, to memorize it, to, to pray. All of these different things, even uh, uh, our, our ordinances of baptism, Lord's Supper, all of these things are means that God has given us to deepen our appreciation of the enormity of God's grace. But in that book, he speaks of the discipline of celebration. Now, to make no mistake about it, God is to be celebrated. And I don't know about y'all, but I'm easily distracted. I, I, I guess at my age, out of the many things you have, I guess I have adult ADD. Because it doesn't take much to kind of knock me offline. And yet... There is the reality of practice and the hard work of rightfully knowing and appreciating and pursuing that which should be celebrated, which must be celebrated because of the goodness of God and remaining focused upon that even in the midst of days in which we're being tried. And even on those days in which we're being tried, we know what? He's working in that trial to make us more thankful and make us more joyful. Wow. So, so even when you're not rejoicing and you're not being obedient to God's law and you're sinning, you can rejoice that that day of adversity and sorrow is actually doing what? It is preparing you to be more joyful. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's hard work. It's a discipline. I've already mentioned the connection between the reality of being born again, of being regenerate, of, of, of there being a, a, a vital, organic relationship between us and God that so informs, that so permeates that so pervades who we are what we do that is once was sung up from the ground came a bubbling crude of joy that 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 you just can't help it even when the tears flow the joy flows with it and so we may and we must rejoice Always. And it's as regenerate people who've been given the eyes to see and the ears to hear uh, the truth, we understand the truth of the gospel and the realities of a fallen world, and we live appropriately with those tensions, celebrating His sovereignty, that He works all things according to the counsel of His own will. That doesn't mean most things, most churchy-type things, most Christian-y type things. He's sovereign over every moment and every molecule. And He has wisely, and in His way that is above our ways, He has considered all things and determined for your good and His glory. This is to be. And in that, we can rejoice Always, that, that we rejoice that He is indeed our defender and our advocate. 
You know, I make so many messes in my life, I need somebody to be my go-between. I'm thankful his name is Jesus. The devil has ample evidence on me. And I have an advocate. I have an attorney there in heaven that says, I've taken care of that. That issue has been resolved. It was resolved 2,000 years ago at the cross of Calvary. The fact that he is not rejoicing as, as he should always is covered. But I'm going to give him joy unspeakable. That indeed God is working in every circumstance imaginable for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose and we say that in a world in which the his shapings in our life are painful that there's a day that that work will be complete and not only will he make us new he will make all things new and he will wipe away those tears and and those tears maybe we'll look at jesus maybe we won't i don't know and go you know i always wondered Paul wrote this business in Romans 8.18 that the suffering or the sorrows of this life are not worthy to be compared to the glory to be revealed in us. And I thought, golly, man, life, oh, how can that be true? And I want to say on this day, not only do I believe it in my mind, I know it in the fullness of of my being is that I have seen my Savior's face. And that rejoy, that rejoicing that you demanded that I do, that was a foretaste of eternal joy. It was a breaking in of that joy to my current moment. I'm thankful for those moments of joy. And I never could have imagined the joy that I know now in the fullness of the presence and the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so joy and its concurrent rejoicing is certainly a, a mindset. It is a worldview. It is a, a resolution from the knowledge of God. And it utterly destroys our anxiety regarding the vanities of life in our fallen world. Again, Jesus says to us, let our, not our hearts be troubled. And Paul would later write, rejoice always. And, and, and in case you missed it, he says, always and again, 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 I say rejoice, just in case you missed it that first time. And I, I don't know that I ever read this verse. And I can't remember which of the cassette tapes that I listened to 3,422 times a week when my children were growing up. I think it was Salty. Uh, some of you that have baby boomers that have children may remember Salty. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice was a little little song that they sang. Good stuff. True stuff. Prayerfully something that God not only sealed in my heart, 
but sealed in the hearts of my children as they know what adversity is as well. And then Paul says to us, and this is interesting as we move forward, let, and this, I, I am a fan of the ESV, don't, don't get me wrong. I don't know, out of half a dozen words that, that could have been used to translate this Greek word, looks like epochus or epochus, reasonableness, not only is it hard to say, this doesn't seem like quite the right word. Every commentator says this is a notoriously difficult word to translate into English with one word. And so, but in reality, if it is reasonable to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, then it is reasonable to rejoice always. It is a reasonable thing to let the world see and let your fellow believers see that indeed in this time of the storms of life, you're rejoicing because it's a reasonable thing because I have a Savior who not only died for me but will return for me one day. And He is indeed my good shepherd and my very present comfort and help in this time of need. And so you could translate that particular word gentle or gracious, forbearing, merciful, all really great biblical concepts and Christ-like characters that, that, that we should seek to cultivate by way of the disciplines Okay, the spiritual disciplines, going to the Word and finding where I am guilty, applying the gospel to my guilt and praying that God would empower me to live out these biblical imperatives for my good and for the good of those around me. So that's all really good. So let it be known that I'm gentle, even in a difficult world in which I get pretty angry about stuff. I've told you that before. You should be thankful every day I'm your pastor. Because if you knew me and I wasn't your pastor, I would probably embarrass you about how angry I am about certain things. Yeah. But your gentleness and your graciousness, your forbearing, that, the, the idea of a patient, of bearing one another's burdens, of looking in love, if we love our neighbor, we actually act in mercy towards them. That we're charitable. That, that again, we, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, we, in love we bear all things. And so, we do these things and it makes our joy known. It makes that which we say we believe, that which we preach, that which we profess makes that gospel attractive because in a world that is increasingly unjoyful, we are joyful. And, and part of, notice again, verse 5, the Lord is at hand. Again, one of those interesting phrases, what does he mean by that? Now, if you go back to verse 20 of 
chapter 3, when he mentions our citizenship, he speaks of awaiting the return of our Lord. And so maybe he means that the time of our Lord's appearance, of His return, is near. And that's a biblical concept, and we should bear that in mind. Or maybe he means he is near in that he is near to us, so near that his Holy Spirit dwells within us. And he is here, as the old hymn goes, to cheer and to guide. And, And so he is near as the good shepherd whose rod and staff comforts us as we walk through that valley of the shadow of death. I've already mentioned that he is our advocate. He is the friend closer than a brother. He is the one that will never leave us or forsake us. We are, as we do this, to give thanks in all things. Before we get to the thanksgiving aspect of it. Verse 6, that negative imperative, that present active imperative, that that do this always or don't do this always as, as the case is here. Do not be anxious about anything. It's, it's interesting. So I was preparing this week. Not in my good luck, but in the smiling providences of a sovereign God who is sovereign over every molecule and every moment. Have you ever heard that before? Has anybody ever said that to you? I just want to be sure you you heard that. He brought to my attention both a a book that I haven't gotten around to reading yet, but it, it caught my attention, a book by a man I've mentioned a number of times, Michael Horton, Recovering Our Sanity. It's a good book. How Fear of God Conquers the Fears that Divide Us. And then in Friday's episode of The Briefing, Al Mohler communicated this. That a study has revealed, a recent study, that one in eight Americans have been described, prescribed antidepressants. One in eight. I'm not knocking that if that's something... That may be necessary in the moment. But you give those to people because they are what? They're anxious. They're, 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 they're struggling. So, so what is that? Twelve and a half percent of our society. What would that, and again, if we did the math of those, say, over 30 years old, what percentage of people over 30 years old have been prescribed something to help them cope? Because they're not rejoicing in the Lord. And so one in eight. Another study in in Horton's book says that one in five Americans have been diagnosed with a mental illness. This was from 2017. Now, again, depression and things like that are characterized in that. Now, the interesting thing, and and Albert Moeller is one of the least funny people I know, but sometimes he does do a little tongue-in-cheek. After speaking about the one in eight who are prescribed antidepressants, he reported that there was a survey of 409 pet owners who said 50% of these pet owners were getting CBD products and antidepressants for their cats or their dogs. Now, there may be just more than a little bit of projection going on there, okay? I don't know. 
But again, we are an anxious society. In the introduction to, to Horton's book, in the foreword, the author of the foreword <laughs> cites Jerry Seinfeld, great theologian. Now, I have you know, I have never seen a full episode of Seinfeld in my entire life. So I don't know very much about Jerry Seinfeld, thankfully. But evidently, he had a routine where he said that surveys reveal that the number one fear of Americans is public speaking. The second fear is that of death, in which he goes on to opine that what you're telling me is that when you go to the funeral, the guy in the casket is better off than the guy doing the eulogy. I'm sure he got a bigger laugh than I did. But that's interesting. But we are an anxious culture. I never will forget, right in the early days of the pandemic, and I went to the golf course one morning and saw a friend of mine, a gentleman that's 85 years old, Christian man. And we were all still at that place. We were uh, paying for, to play through the raised-up window in the pro shop. You couldn't even go in the building. And, you know, you, you, you walk up and you see your friend, and you're like, I mean, you just, you don't know, uh, you don't even know where to speak. I mean, I'm going to blow my words on you and you're, you're going to get something. And so I'm walking up to this gentleman, you know, like, he said, come here, youngin. I'm 85 years old. You think I'm going to let a little old virus scare me? I thought, what wisdom. I ran into him just in the last week. Still healthy and robust. Living with his wife in the last stages of Alzheimer's. But you know what he knows? He knows the joy that passes all understanding even in the day of trial. And so, interestingly enough, a 2018 survey said people were anxious. The number one thing that made people anxious, 74% said government corruption. I'm surprised 100% didn't say that. Then, <laughs> let me tell you, there's a lot of things that I get kind of, but I am not a global warming guy, okay? Just, just so, so, you know, if you're all, you know, get you an electric car and, you know, don't use aerosol right guard or something. And, again, if you're going to drop the aerosol right guard, get this, the roll on, please. Oh, come on now. But the next thing that most concerned people was threats to the environment. Now, again, I'm... Don't throw your garbage out the window. I'm thankful that we're not dumping raw sewage in the river, but come on. That's got to be a first world problem. Uh, people with way too much money, if that's high up on their concerns. For baby boomers, our, our number one fear is getting old, and we are. For millennials, and this is interesting, their number one concern is they're nothing special. Maybe very closely tied to 
wasting their lives. Vanity. It's all vanity. It's all meaningless. It's chasing after the wind. I thought that was very interesting. For Generation Z, and I don't even know who you are, okay? I, I, and don't care. They fear everything, even their shadows, evidently. As is typically studied, drug use is on the rise, alcohol use, and suicide. Just as an aside, this is not a statement as to whether drinking beer or wine or whatever is absolutely, in every case, a sin. But I found it interesting right here in the buckle of the good old Bible Belt that Alabama is the number one consumer of beer per capita at 29.1 gallons per year. And our favorite brand is Budweiser. Okay. Reckon some of that's treating lack of joy, not rejoicing, being anxious. I know too many people that medicate themselves with it. Leading cause of death among 15 to 24-year-olds, suicide. In the year 2020, there were 93,000 deaths by drug overdose. We're, 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 we're an anxious society. And that anxiety is a direct threat. As I said, we need to dictate to the culture. But in the church, unfortunately, in my lifetime, we have allowed the culture to dictate to us. Probably if surveys were out there of this nature, the church is just as anxious as the world is. And so, Jesus said, I tell you not to be anxious about your life. Baby boomers, what's our number one concern? We're getting old. And the last time I checked, at the end of the road marked old is a destination called dead. And ain't none of us going to avoid it. Don't even be anxious about your life. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. Like I say, inflation, government restrictions, immoral legislation, on and on it goes. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Don't project. Don't get ahead of yourself. Don't, don't, don't wring your hands over things that may never be. One of the chapters in Horton's books is entitled, A Pandemic of Fear. I remember going to a doctor almost a year ago now. And he told me, and this, I don't know if he was a Christian, I don't know if he was a conservative, I don't know anything about the guy. But I was just picking a little bit just to see what he would say. He said, I'm profoundly disappointed in the medical, I think he used the word medical industry, of the colleges and universities producing doctors, of the AMA, of the pharma, pharmaceutical companies, of the doctors on the street, you name it. I'm disappointed in all of them as to how they've handled this pandemic. And what this pandemic has exposed is that we are scared to death, and we're scared to death of being scared to death, and we're scared to death of dying. 
And again, I am not in any shape, form, or fashion. Listen, my left arm hurts right now because it's got 17 stitches in it because a place that I didn't even know was there needed to be removed, okay? Take care of yourself. I took my blood pressure medicine before I came here this morning. I wore seatbelt as I drove up here. That's not what this is about. But let me tell you, Jesus said, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life. In fact, instead of being anxious, why don't you just give thanks in all things? Give thanks. Let me tell you something. Bottom line, you've heard me say it before. It's not original to me. Any day that you're not in hell is a good day. If you understand anything about the Bible, the one thing you deserve is hell. And the one thing I deserve is hell. And thank God I'm not there right now. And that's a very minimalist approach. But we counter our anxieties by prayer without ceasing at its appointed time, by having a constant state, praying in Jesus' name, praying in the Spirit, being aware of the reality of our sin, being thankful for the Advocate, being aware that as we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We are to, in our prayer life, praise our Savior, offer to Him the adoration He deserves. We're to petition and intercession Him because He knows our needs before any one of them is ever spoken by us. He knows us. And he remembers our frame. That's steel, right? He remembers our frame. We're dust. We're dust. He remembers that. And so we're to pray by way of supplication, the idea of urgent and passionate. James would write, the fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. We are to give thanks give thanks by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving we make our request now we are thankful that we can request that which we need we can make a request regarding that which concerns us we have a father who hears we have a savior who advocates we have a spirit that helps us pray when we don't even know how to pray i have found myself way too often your will be done. I can't even figure it out. I can't even figure it out. Your will be done. And so we make those requests and we make them confidently because He hears our prayers. little gospel song we used to sing, What a friend we have in Jesus. But it may be simple, but it's true. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Yeah. What's the next stanza? Are you weary and downtrodden? Take it to the Lord. That's the invitation. That's the command. Do that. And so then we give thanks with joy. I'm not going to read it because imagine me running a little behind schedule. But Heath read Psalm 100. It was one of the citations I had in my message. But go back. Enter his courts with thanksgiving and praise. Come before him with joy. Acknowledge him as God, and free yourself from your anxieties. Give thanks in all occasions and rejoice always and know the promise 
of God's peace there in verse 7. Peace in a troubled world. I've always wanted to be rich, and I probably, I guess I haven't ceased that desire. doesn't look like it's going to happen. But if I could package peace, I'd be Amazon's number one site, wouldn't I? If I could sell it. But again, we have a peace that passes all understanding. A peace that comes through the imaginable great, immeasurable greatness of our Savior. And He guards our hearts and our minds. That is, that, that He, like a soldier on a post, He is guarding our hearts and our minds so the way we think and the way we feel and the way we act, we will not be overcome. We will not succumb in the victory because our Lord Jesus Christ, He rules and He reigns. So how do we then give thanks? If you want to expand it, then how do we live? Same thing. Really is. With a view toward Jesus and His cross and His gospel, the realities of that gospel, that our sins are forgiven, that death is defeated, and the eternal joy that we promise up there, out there, then, is a part of the reality now. I thought Charles Wesley captured, how do we do this? Captured this so well in the great hymn, Rejoice the Lord is king. Rejoice the Lord is king, your Lord and king adore. Mortals give thanks and sing and triumph. Triumph. It's funny, I, I watched several college football games yesterday. You can, you, you can just watch the body language after the game. You don't even have to know the score. Yeah, you can, you can see the difference just in the body language. We are the victors. We have triumphed in Christ. Jesus, the Savior, reigns the God of truth and love. When He had purged our stains, He took His seat above. His kingdom cannot. It doesn't have the ability to fail. He rules over earth and heaven. The keys of death and hell are to our Jesus given. He sits at God's right hand. Till all his foes submit and bow to his command, fall beneath his feet. He all his foes shall quell, shall all our sins destroy, and every bosom swell with pure seraphic joy. That sounds like something like rejoice always, and again I say rejoice. And the fivefold repeated refrain. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice, rejoice again. I say rejoice. It's corollary negatively, be anxious for nothing. And it's affirmation in the positive, give thanks in every circumstance. Your roots are sunk deeply by virtue of regeneration in the reality of eternal joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace, for a grace in which we have knowledge of a Savior in whom we may and we must and we shall rejoice. 
Father, I confess, I am one that gets caught up in the fallenness of our world. And it indeed is a great stealer of joy. It is a producer of anxiety. I pray that you would forgive me of those anxious moments. And that in all of these things I would look to a Savior who rules and reigns, who does all things well, who will bring all things to their appropriate end in the appropriate time. And in Him, the one who declares the end from the beginning, I can trust, and in that trust I can rejoice and give thanks and be free from anxiety. May it be so for your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.